Greetings. Welcome back to Sip Flick. Um, I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad to have you back here with me. And I'm ready to get on with our episode. So, this episode is dedicated to our gay brothers out there. Um, yeah, I hope you're doing well. I hope your skin is clear. I hope you're having a magnificent day. Um, so yeah, let's, let's get on with the episode. (laughs) So if you're new and if you are not caught up with what's going on with the podcast so far. So a few weeks ago, I decided I was going to do a pride series for the next few weeks. Um, it is a six part series in which we will be covering, um, various films and film history facts regarding the LGBTQ plus community. Um, Our first episode was an introductory episode. If you want to learn more about these series and also hear my thoughts on why it is important to talk about queer cinema, um, that's in the first episode. In the second episode, we actually started the like actual series, I guess you could say, and we talked about lesbian films. So if you love lesbian films like I do, or... If you want to be more informed with what's going on with the series, definitely check it out. I really enjoyed um, doing the episode, especially like learning all the facts I did and talking about all of the movies that we talked about. I thought it was a pretty decent selection, um, I guess, for the time being. So, yeah, and we're going to be doing the same thing with gay films today. So and instead of. Um, doing entertainment news, I said in our first episode, the introductory episode, instead of doing entertainment news, I've decided that for my Pride series, I was going to use that time to talk about film history facts, um, different types of coding and stereotyping related to the queer community, as well as some fun facts and tidbits. So without further ado, let's get on to that part. <laughs> So for our film history facts, I like to say, um, first there were, there were, there's a bunch, there were a bunch as well, but one of the earliest, um, out directors, openly gay directors was George Cougar. I guess you, I think that's how you say it. Um, like I said, he was an openly gay film director. Um, and he made films, I think between like he did a lot of films. Like I think he had like 50 films under his belt. So it was around like the 1920s to maybe, I don't really know when he ended. So I think he started around the 1920s. Um, and a lot of his films were very subliminal in their queer coding, but one of his more prominent films is called Our Betters. And it includes um, a queer coded character named Ernest he acts kind of flamboyantly and so that's kind of why or how he got queer coded um and around that time character actors not the character actor that played Ernest but character actors in general um were kind of known to make their careers out of characters with vague sexualities one of the more prominent ones is Edward Everett Horton I think you could I think that's how you say it um, and he was, he wasn't 
openly gay. He was suspected of being gay, um, but it was never confirmed. But he was a very prominent character actor in like the early 20s and 30s um, that played a lot of characters with vague sexualities. So that is one. And then next we have, um, so during the Hayes Code, and if you watched my introductory episode, you will know when the Hayes Code happened. Um, so during the Hayes Code era, Joseph Breen was the Hayes Code director, and he ran the whole machinery, I guess you could say, um, for over 20 years. And he was the main person to authorize the changes of queer characters, plot lines, personalities, and stuff like that, um, to switch it over to at least less overt um, portrayals of queerness. So he was the main one behind that, if you would like to know. And then fast forward a few years to the 1980s. The 1980s is very prominent within the gay community because it was the start and peak rise whatnot of the AIDS HIV crisis so as it relates to film history um during during and after the um the I guess the major part of the AIDS crisis because I know that's still something that is struggled or dealt with today it kind of never went away it's just kind of gotten less bad as when it uh, kind of initially broke out so during the height of that um, crisis a lot of early stories about AIDS um, that came out were very much focused on like family values and withholding family values um, which kind of resulted in obviously a peak in homophobia, portrayal of homophobia, stereotyping, and um, fearing the other. So it kind of went past, it, it, it included like gay men and gay relationships, but it also went past that for just queer people in general. There was a lot of um, rise in homophobia, stereotyping, and fearing of the other um, during that time. And again, there was a large enforcement of um, upholding family values. So like I said in last episode with lesbian films around that time, lesbian films or films centered around lesbian characters made a more prominent push towards being family friendly, you know, as a way of trying to work with the times to also kind of compromise. I don't want to say their morals, but, you know, to put a good foot forward so that they can continue to put out content and representation for lesbian characters. That's kind of where it um, came from. Also, as a reaction to the crisis, um, a lot of Hollywood films or a lot of films in general started to adapt a new masculine ideal. And this kind of came in the form of like, Sylvester Stallone's characters and a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger's characters. Um, just the idea of like a really buff, sun-tanned man um, became very much like, I guess, a standard of a lot of films, especially in action films. And a lot of action films started to recoil back to 
old school values and traditions and setups um, as a way of trying to, again, enforce the new masculine ideal to try and combat the AIDS crisis. So that's kind of all I have for film history. Um, going on to coding and stereotypes, a big thing that happened in the 1920s. And like I said, again, the 1920s and early 1930s were very much a period of creating shocking images and using queer people for shock factor. So a part of that came the stereotype of the sissy or the pansy. And that was essentially an effeminate or flamboyant um, male character. They were often coded as queer. And a lot of times, again, they, it was just the betrayal of kind of like feminine traits and personalities. Um, they were used as a central plot to make everybody feel more manly or womanly, more masculine or feminine because they kind of occupied that space in between. Um, they oftentimes did not have a sexuality. Their sexuality was never explicitly told. And that was kind of their saving grace, I guess, at the time. Um, that's kind of what made Hollywood not kind of just keep that character around for the most part um, and allow them to kind of thrive during that era. Um, the When the Hays Code came into effect, it very much invented or created the gay or queer cold-blooded killer um, or villain. And this was seen in a lot of different films. It was seen in Hitchcock's films like Rebecca and Rope. Um, and I think Rope was the one that had the two, like the, the gay couple that were very much like cold-blooded killers. Um, if not, there was a film that had that in there. Um, and then and Joel Caro's character in Maltese Falcon. Um, he is coded as gay and he is also a major villain in the film as well. Um, and this kind of brought up the debate on whether or not bad, bad representation or no representation is kind of better. Um, because obviously these are, you know, kind of terrible um, acts of representation. And so again, it brings on the debate on whether or not it's better to not have representation at all or for the representation you have to be majorly flawed or just bad and negative in general. Um, those are the two that I have for the coding and stereotypes. And then moving on to some facts and tidbits. Our first fact is in Clara Bow's film, Call Her Savage. Um, it was the first film to show Hollywood's first gay bar. So that's exciting. <laughs> and um, it's not necessarily like a fun fact or tidbit, but I guess it's just to give, again, more context to film history and films that were during or centered or reflected back on the AIDS HIV epidemic. Um, so if you do not know much about the AIDS slash HIV epidemic, the first case that was confirmed um, happened in 1981 and it kind of just skyrocketed from there. Um, there was a major peak in 1985 and remember that date because it is important later on in this episode. 
So yes, it peaked kind of around 1985. Um, since then, I wouldn't say necessarily it's died down, but there has just been a lot more understanding um, around it and more push towards trying to find a cure and stuff like that, but also people understanding and learning new ways to live a happy and fulfilled life amongst it or in spite of it. Um, so like I said, it hasn't necessarily like started and ended, but it's definitely not as bad as it was when the first case was confirmed around the, you know, 1980s. Um, but again, it does play a major role in how gay characters specifically, but also queer characters in general, um, were portrayed and how their stories were told going after that. The first widely released film that deals with AIDS that actually talks about and deals with the AIDS crisis is the 1989 film Long Time Champion. Um, and then the first primetime gay kiss is technically up for debate. Um, a lot of people say it's either between Will and Grace and Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek came three months after Will and Grace in 1995. So, and then the last thing I have for you today is in 1999, Britain's Channel 4 actually made history for its debut of Queer as Folk. Um, this was pretty pivotal because it kind of paved the way for shows and movies to center around um, queer characters you know on tv on I don't know if you would say primetime tv or just on like network tv I guess is more so accurate and it also showed investors that there was that they could essentially take a risk on like queer um, programming so that's what I have for you related to our queer cinema history facts. Um, I think it was pretty interesting. It was very interesting finding out like, especially how the AIDS crisis um, and epidemic played a role in film history. Um, because, you know, especially if like, if you just if you're just like watching movies and you watch movies around that time, you do see a shift in how gay people or queer people in general are seen or portrayed. Um, but it's interesting to see kind of like society's reactions to that and how it influenced or translated onto film. But with that being said, we're gonna get into the content of this episode. So I have a few films that I want to talk about. Um, and like last episode, we're gonna talk about different concepts and ideas related to those films, but also kind of what I think that they do for the queer community, but also kind of society at large. I did, well, I did, but I didn't. Um, the first movie we're gonna talk about is Moonlight, but as I keep saying every time I bring this movie up, we're not going to talk too deeply or too in-depth in the movie because, again, an episode or two is going to come out uh, where we specifically sit down and talk about Moonlight in depth. Um, so, again, I don't want to give all of my marbles away regarding the film, 
but it's more so to use as a way of emphasizing um, the movie that we're going to be talking about after this. But yes, I want to quickly talk about Moonlight. Um, the first thing that I wanted to speak on it is the idea of, I call it queering the most masculinized. Um, it, again, it, that is the central theme that I'm going to be talking about in these next two movies. And that's what kind of ties them together. And that's also why I wanted to talk about Moonlight in this regard. Um, because for Moonlight's sake, I say that it queers the most masculinized person. And what I mean by that is I think like the most masculinized, I don't know how else to say it, like the person or the type of person that I feel like society puts the biggest emphasis on like masculinity or sees them as the most masculine um, person in society is the black man especially a dark-skinned black man because like with dark-skinned people um, especially not kind of like a side note but like if you're aware if you're in tune what's going on um, recently there has been a debate or there's been a discussion on how dark-skinned black women are often masculinized um, I saw something about it was a debate on whether or not people think that dark-skinned black women can face transphobia. We're not gonna be talking about that um, in this episode, but it was kind of like stemming from the idea of like a lot of people use dark-skinned black women um, and see them being dark-skinned as kind of like see it as a masculine, um, as a masculine feature. And so a lot of black women, a lot of dark-skinned black women are masculinized because of how dark skin is often masculinized. Does that make sense? Um, and so you have dark skin, which is often seen as a masculine trait. And then you have man, <laughs> which is obviously, you know, seen as very masculine. And so you have a black man, which is often seen as very masculine. Um, and so when you kind of put it all together, I think that it goes without, you know, saying it goes without having to debate that the black man is kind of like the most masculinized figure in society. And so what I think Moonlight does very well or something that they do that is quite interesting um, is you see them queer the most masculinized person and especially in the way that um Chiron the main character acts so he kind of goes against again the stereotype of like the sissy where he is not he is not he does not act very feminine he is not flamboyant in any way especially in his in the third act um when he is black he is very buff he is a drug dealer he is very hard which again i think also adds to the masculinization of black men but also his character as well it's kind of like 
he he takes on the most masculine traits um that i think a man could have um and he applies it to his own life and so in that sense it's kind of like in any way shape or form that he could be rejecting homosexuality um stereotypically i guess you could say he does you know and so it's like if you were to see him in any other context or if you see him in the film without him saying anything and without any sort of knowledge of his background you're like that is that is a very straight but also very masculine man and so what is interesting about moonlight is that again at the end of the day he's gay you know and I think it does, like, it, it flips the stereotype of the sissy on its head because it is like, here is this masculine man, the most masculine, you know, person you could probably find in society. He is buff. He is dark skin. He is a black man. He is also a drug dealer. And he also came out of prison, you know? So it's like... If there is any sort of person that you feel like would reject homosexuality or would just be as straight as could be, you would see, you know, black as that. And then for him to be like, and for him to be gay, and especially for him to formally address it, um, even though it's not necessarily explicit, he doesn't say he is gay, but I think guess within the context of the film he explicitly says it um I think it is very interesting and I feel like in a sense it works to break that stereotype down you know it also works to represent um gay men that do not fit into the stereotype of the sissy so gay men that are not flamboyant or do not act feminine in kind of any sort of way um I don't want to say it gives them that space but it shows it shows everybody else that they are very much real they are very much present and you know these are kind of in the ways that you can still not that you can spot them um but kind of like you know this might be the kind of person that you meet if that makes sense does that make sense I don't know how much that makes sense um but yeah I thought that was very interesting um how it kind of I don't even want to say that it's like contradicting or it is um like combating or maybe necessarily it is a reaction to it um I don't think it acts as any sort of reactionary mode or persona or anything you know I don't think that it is like here we're trying to show you that masculine gay men exist I think in just the portrayal of who he is and his character and showcasing his character and the understanding that he is gay um at the very least it makes you realize and understand like masculine gay men exist if that makes sense um, so I think that's particularly interesting. And like I said, in Moonlight's case, I, I 
consider it to be queering the masculinized person um, because I think that there is a different masculinized entity um, as we go along in this episode as well. Next, I have that it addresses homophobia in the black community. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily address. I say it exposes, <laughs> which makes me think of an essay I wrote on the film. I'm so obsessed. Huh, it's crazy. So yes, it doesn't necessarily address, I say it exposes homophobia in the black community. Um, if you are black, I think that this is something that is very well known. Um, black people have a very bad tendency to equate or no to invalidate um, any intercommunal struggles or problems we have by saying that racism is our biggest problem, if that makes sense. So like a big thing that the black community struggles with is colorism. And it is so hard to talk about it and it's so hard to get past it because so many black people, um, especially so many light-skinned black people, but also a lot of dark-skinned black men um, have this particular issue with seeing it as a valid problem within the community that needs to be addressed because they think that combating racism is our biggest problem that we need to feel or need need to deal with. Um, and so they're kind of like, you know, that's what we need to all be focused on. We need to unite behind racism and make sure that we are trying to combat racism because that is our biggest problem. That's what's killing us the most. And a lot of black people refuse or just push addressing issues like colorism but also homophobia within the black community um, because they think that it's just not as important when it is that is not the case you know uh, it all goes back to kind of like we can address multiple issues at the same time <laughs> and so what this film does very well but also what it does in general is it exposes the homophobia in the black community it shows you ways in which it invades but also permeates within the community and the different forms it takes when it's used as oppression if that makes sense you know so it it happens in small ways um in like you know again microaggressions but also internally you see it being performed internally um within characters but you also see it you know being played outright especially with Terrell's character the bully he targets um Chiron because he knows that he is gay and he uses that as like I don't want to say necessarily his avenue he uses bullying as like his, his avenue for his homophobia um but in the process you you see or you hopefully come to understand that it is um, an issue that we face in the community. The film doesn't necessarily give you a solution for it. It kind of shows you how it um, oppresses but also affects and hurts um, 
gay men, black gay men. And so it doesn't necessarily show you the solution because, I mean, obviously, like, you know, they'd have the solution, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, like, it doesn't it doesn't tell you, like, oh, this person's being homophobic in this way, but this is how, you know, we can stop it. It just shows you how, like, a lot of straight cis black men are homophobic to gay men but you know gay queer people in general um and what that does to them how that affects them later on in their life so i think it does a really good job of that as well and then the last thing like i said it's kind of a sub compartment of overall homophobia within the black community but it also does a really good job to showcase internalized homophobia and then relating to pariah that we talked about in the last episode um it also shows the idea of gender performance as a means of survival so like i said chiron after he is bullied tirelessly throughout his entire childhood and teenhood um, and he finally gets revenge on Terrell. He is then sent to prison. And while he's in prison, he kind of builds up the most masculine persona. And so that's where he kind of takes on the name as Black. That's also where he bulks up and then gets into drug dealing. Um, and I'm not saying that, like, that's not who he was. Like, that, I'm not saying that, like, he, if, if he did not face all the trauma he did in his youth, he would have been, you know, a very effeminate, um, flamboyant gay man. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that a lot of his trauma feeds into his image and he kind of alludes to it um in the end where he was like you know when I went to when I got to Atlanta um I decided to build build myself up from the ground I decided to build myself hard you know so I wouldn't have to go through all of the the trauma that I went through in my youth again um so you see he he literally does kind of say how he kind of uses that persona to protect himself to make sure he doesn't go through that again and it's kind of in the same way that pariah used um femininity or the persona of being a very feminine um stereotypical feminine uh girl as a means of surviving as a means of being in the closet they both kind of take on the extremes of society's ideal of what it means to be their gender um, as a way of trying to survive but operate within the homophobic world and homophobic space that they you know they live in um, and so I guess you could say what is great with Moonlight is you see that for um, the gay man. So Pariah, it shows you what it is like to be a lesbian woman who like her in her heart and soul, she likes to 
use her gender performance to be more masculine um but since she is not out and she does not live in an inclusive environment she uses femininity as a means of survival you see the same with chiron but slightly different because we don't really know like who and and what and how he likes to be um i guess like under like when he is completely free with himself you know so there is no kind of like the stripping of clothes and the stripping of the persona in moonlight as there is in pariah you know when she is like around her friends or when she is actually expressing her sexuality fully um in those inclusive spaces you don't see the same thing happening for chiron but you see how he uses aspects of masculinity to his benefit in order to survive you know so i think that that's very interesting like i said i didn't want to talk too much about moonlight because i do want to have a whole in-depth episode so i'll probably be repeating some things from this episode in that episode but i'll be talking about a lot of other stuff anyway so it's okay um and then moving on to our next movie i wanted to talk about brokeback mountain for a little bit because i think it did do i think it was a pivotal step um in queer cinema history especially in the mainstream aspect kind of in the same way that moonlight is but kind of not <laughs> um so yeah broke my mountain was kind of like a big mainstream movie that did very well um that focused on queer characters or focused on gay men in particular and that's kind of why it is kind of hailed so or accredited so widely because um so many people saw it and so many people enjoyed it and it's still kind of centered around gay characters but also i want to talk about it again in relationship to moonlight regarding queering the most masculine eyes like i just said moonlight it was a person i think that moonlight did a really good job of showing a queer character um I don't know if I would say necessarily in the form of the most masculinized person, but kind of showing the most masculinized person out there and showing, um, you know, what it looks like to still be gay, if that makes sense. I don't know. My thoughts, I feel like I did a better job of my thoughts when I talked about it. But for Brokeback Mountain, I wanted to use it as a way of showing um the queering of the most masculinized job i'm not gonna say that being a farmer or being a cowboy is the most masculine job out there but i think that there definitely is a assumption i guess you could say um about being a cowboy you know and I think also like when it relates to films there they were kind of I feel like they are kind of seen as like the most heroic manly man you know like they're they're just the manliest man and that's how you know they're often seen in in a lot of um films 
they are also kind of portrayed as, you know, very heroic, obviously. And for Brokeback Mountain, I think what is interesting is them queering the cowboy, <laughs> you know? So I think that it, again, it, it goes to show that queerness is as present and as prevalent as anything else or as straightness is I guess you could say um or just the fact that there are queer people queer characters queer storylines um in everything you know you can't like there's not there's not one place you can escape and be like oh like there's there's no queerness here you know there's no gay characters here it's like even in the cowboy story here are some two gay cowboys um yeah and I think it does a really good job to again show that those kinds of people are present those kind of people are are real they exist even if it is in a fictionalized story like Brokeback Mountain um it also I guess one last thing and obviously you could say that this is true but I know a lot of people um I don't know if they would necessarily see their relationship as doomed maybe more so of you know what happens to their characters or what happens to their love story in the end is more so I don't even know if I would say byproduct of like homophobia but you know like what happens to them is because of homophobia is because of the time um the setting of the film the atmosphere the politics and stuff like that was very homophobic so you know their their love is kind of doomed in that aspect but more so because of the times but also I feel like that is still saying that they had a doomed relationship you know you kind of know from the beginning that they're never going to be together or if they're together they're never going to be celebrated they're never going to be fully out you know you you kind of know from the beginning of the film that this is going to stay a closeted relationship they can do all they want through the years they can push for you know whatever they want um down the line but again you're kind of like this is never going to be and I think in that aspect again it's definitely a doomed relationship even if what happened in the film weren't to happen you know I think just knowing from the beginning that they're never going to be together at the very least is the makings of a, a doomed relationship um I I know that that is kind of not positive I know that I guess that kind of representation would be seen as negative um but I think it's interesting I guess with this film in particular because especially because of like the high praise it got granted it probably got a lot of the high praise from straight people um especially maybe because it was a doomed relationship um, there was some way that, you know, straight people could be okay with seeing this short of, sort of relationship form, um, but still kind of knowing in the back of their minds, but also being shown at the end of the film that, you know, they weren't, they weren't ever going to really fully be together. Um, 
but I guess in the process, like what, I don't want to say what makes it less bad, but I guess what in the process makes it still such a good film is the fact that despite all of the trials and tribulations they have to go through with their relationship and the ultimate um, unfortunate ending, it is still a beautiful relationship, a beautiful telling of their time together um, in the process. And I think that that goes again with the directing and editing um, and cinematography of the film, like the overall look and feel of the film goes to make it seem less daunting as it is or less doomed as it eventually becomes um but again in the end their relationship is ultimately doomed you know you can't really deny it um the next film that i want to talk about and i'm flying through these kind of fast i i don't know i guess i apologize if you kind of wanted more fleshed out thoughts, I feel like these, they all kind of have really big points. Um, but also those two are kind of more so to draw in one point. And I also was kind of short on Moonlight because like I said, I want to do an episode on it. But I think that again, Moonlight also did a very good job of showing um, queerness within the black community and specifically um, a story about a gay black man. I will say that going back to Moonlight. <laughs> um, but the next film that I wanted to talk about was Love, Simon. Now, I have some critiques of Love, Simon. We will definitely get into it. Um, but I do also think that it is still a worthwhile film to watch and to include in the discussion about um films centered around gay characters especially how it relates to again the lgbtq plus youth so i wanted to include one um that touches upon queer youth again i use pariah in last episode to touch upon queer youth um, particularly queer black youth. I think that is especially an important story to tell. Love, Simon kind of does the opposite because it is still about a white character um, and whiteness cannot really be covered up, especially nowadays. So, but again, um, I think that it does a decent job for maybe the most part on how it relates but also portrays um queer youth and the queer youth experience i guess in that regard i wouldn't say that it does a bad job i just have some problems with his support system and i guess i'll i'll get into that um i kind of didn't want to talk about it necessarily up front, but I think that it is a major problem with the story in general. And I feel like that is probably the biggest concern I have for people watching the film that they might get out of it. So in Love, Simon, the main character, Simon, is gay. He is not out yet, 
um, and he finds out that somebody, I think in a school, is also gay. And so they have a bit of a back and forth online like relationship friendship type thing where they just talk to each other about being gay but also in the closet in high school uh, but also kind of I guess in general but especially as a teen and he has a group of friends they don't know and where I have my biggest problem with that friend group is in the end when Simon is outed um they find out that he has kind of been manipulating some of their relationships um, in his favor. So for example, I don't remember her name, the black girl, the one black girl, he was trying to push her towards a guy that was blackmailing him because he was blackmailing him and he wanted to be with her. So she, he pushed her onto him or they kind of, he kind of, push their relationship more so together um so that you know the guy wouldn't out him she finds out about it and she gets really mad and she's like you know why are you doing this I thought we were friends blah 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 he um his also like his best friend the girl from 13 reasons why I forget her name as well she is like you know why were you pushing me onto the one black guy <laughs> Um, when like I had feelings for you and so essentially like everybody like his whole friends get mad at him for you know trying to push these relationships together um, and there is absolutely no regard or understanding of the fact that he did all of that because he did not want to be out and in the end he succumbs to them he apologizes he says you know i'm sorry that i did this to you can we be friends after that and they 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 accept his apology and it's just it's so crazy because it's like did he do something bad or in poor judgment or somewhat immoral by doing it yes but there is so much more at stake with him being outed um, especially if he was in, especially if he was in a toxic environment, um, especially if he was in a homophobic environment, um, in a place that was, you know, violently homophobic, like, especially, um, you know, there's so much more at stake with being outed or just coming out in general than there is of you being pushed towards someone that you have full autonomy to say you don't want to be with in the end you know what i'm saying so his friend for his friends to be mad you can you can be angry that this happened for but for them to like blame this solely on him when he again was acting out of a means of survival is absolutely ridiculous and i hate how the film portrays it as if he is ultimately the villain especially because you see it from his perspective all along. So the audience has been like, the audience understands why he's doing all of these things. And even if we don't necessarily agree with him doing it, we are like, but we know that if like, if he, if he doesn't comply, he is going to be outed and you see how, how petrified he is of it. So we are supposed to understand his feelings and understand the reasons behind his actions. And then for the film to kind of flip it on us, essentially, 
and being like, he's the bad guy. You have to fight with the friends. It's just, it's ridiculous, you know? And I feel like it perpetuates this harmful belief that like, one, that being outed without your consent is not that bad. But also, I feel like it makes it seem like, you know, what somebody does out of fear of being outed is ultimately wrong and is ultimately their problem, you know? Kind of like, if somebody outs you, you should just accept it. You should just take it. You know, I don't understand why you were trying to fight this so much, you know, this, that, and the other. But again, it's like, you just, you don't understand what is at stake. You don't understand what that person could be trying to stop from happening to them by being outed or by having to come out. Um, and so, yeah, I just hate, I hated how the film presented that or, or went along with that storyline in the end. Um, and I feel like, again, it's very harmful for people, especially for straight people watching it, because it in some way villainizes, you know, the, the queer person. It villainizes queer people that are trying to not come out. Um, and I think that that also, it creates a space, it creates a hostile environment. It creates a hostile space where there are probably going to be a lot of straight people that feel like it is in their right and it is, they are in the position to do that when they are not, you know? Um, so yeah, I just, I really didn't like it, especially since it is a film catered towards the youth. I feel like it, again, gives a lot of young kids and teenagers it makes them think that you know especially for non-queer um people it thinks that i feel like it gives them the right to do whatever they feel like they can do um regarding their queer peers um, but i also feel like it may make lgbtq plus youth you know feel as if it is it is necessarily their problem, but also feel as if they are the villain in their own, their own story and in their own lives. Um, if, if they have to do something as a, as a means of survival, as a means of trying to not be outed because they are not in an inclusive environment. Um, and it's like, thank God that Simon's family friends kind of and like overall like school system was very supportive of him um, because again had he been in a harmful or violently homophobic household or community um, it could have literally been life or death and it's like even if it's not I don't think we should be pushing the image or the concept or the idea that you know they're the villain you know if that makes sense um so yeah I, I really didn't like that and I didn't like the message that it sent to anybody but especially to um the youth and I also wanted to talk about how it does include um outing without consent uh pariah does have it as well but I didn't necessarily talk about it in the episode, I don't think. 
Um, but this one, I guess, not necessarily that it's more so clear, but it is also a, a very much a central focus to the film um, because he's literally being blackmailed to be out without his consent. Um, and I think what the film does a decent job is making it clear that that is um, a wrong thing to do. Again, I feel like they could have done a better job because in the end, I feel like they sort of redeem the character that ultimately blackmails and outs Simon. Um, I know that, you know, he's always kind of seen as like the bad guy, but also in the parts where you're seeing him starting to win the heart over of that singular black girl, <laughs> I think the film is trying to, like, it's trying to humanize him in the process. It's trying to make us fall for him in the process. Um, and then when he outs Simon, you're like, that was, you know, that's a shitty move. That's really trashy for you to do. I think in the end, he kind of redeems himself in some sort of sense. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think he might not have been, like, well-liked after the end. But I think that there, I think that something happens where he's still kind of, not necessarily redeemed, but he kind of comes back a little bit in a way. Um, and I don't like it. I don't like that they did that. Um, but I think also, again, it, it shows the story or the reality of what it looks like to be outed without your consent, um, especially publicly. And that has to be just like heart-wrenching and heartbreaking. Um, and so I think that it's interesting that they do that, that the film does that because I think in a lot of other films, um, a lot of outing is done in intimate spaces. And so you can see what it is like to be outed without your consent publicly um, to a lot of people, to a mass amount of people. Um, yeah, and, and just kind of like, again, the harmful possibilities that creates. Because while thankfully Simon, like I keep emphasizing, he had a supportive family behind him. His friends were supportive after they were shitty. <laughs> and like in the end, his school like rooted for him and rooted for him trying to find Blue um, I think it still kind of shows the possibility of what that looks like in the opposite sense, what that looks like when you are in a harmful environment. Um, again, it doesn't kind of show you the life or death situation. And maybe that's particularly good because a lot of gay films, but just queer films in general, it's kind of always a life or death situation. Um, so in this case, again, showing that he has a supportive family is somewhat revolutionary because you just, you, you, we haven't gotten that a lot or frequently in, you know, queer stories. But again, it, it, it just shows like how harmful the act of outing somebody without their consent is at the end of the day, regardless of the community that backs them, you know? Um, and then I guess my last thing, 
is I was going to talk about the positive coming out story. Um, I keep emphasizing how it is very good that this film um, ends positively. Because like I said, a lot of queer films, a lot of gay films in particularly, it, a lot of, like I said, a lot of queer films and a lot of gay films in particular um, end very tragically. Like in Brokeback Mountain, there is the trope of the doomed queer relationship. Um, There is also the trope of being outed and then dying, being outed and then killed, being outed and then um, committing suicide, you know? And so for this film to be about coming out or being outed and being supported and being uplifted, I think that regardless of what the film says elsewhere, it is still very good to watch, you know? I do have problems and I think that we should constantly and actively criticize this film for the ways that they went wrong. But I think at the end of the day, Um, They did a really good job by showing a positive coming out story, nonetheless. So that's all I have for Love, Simon. I'm going to move on to Call Me By Your Name. Um, I don't want to talk that much about Call Me By Your Name because I feel like I've not necessarily addressed it as it relates to queerness um, or as it relates to the gay storyline of it. Um, But I feel like I've just kind of talked about Call Me By Your Name. But also because I don't really care for Call Me By Your Name if you saw my unpopular opinions. Um, If you, you know, watched or listened to my unpopular opinions episode. So I don't necessarily want to talk about that much because I don't really care about that film that much. (laughs) But I want to talk about some things that I think that the film does well or some things that I feel like the film creates an avenue of discussion for. Um, The first thing that I want to talk about is a good thing that it does, surprise, surprise, Um, is I think it shows sexual fluidity very well, very nicely, um, without having to become rudimentary, without having to sit and break it down for like the straight audience, you know? And so... It's mostly seen in Elio's character. Um, He obviously kind of falls for Oliver's character, but he also kind of has a complicated relationship with um, his neighbor. I forgot what her name is. Maria something with an M, I think. Um, But yeah, in the book, I know that it is a lot more explicitly discussed and it, 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 kind of more so um hints at bisexuality so in the book um Elio really does have feelings for the girl and even though he is kind of moving into this new relationship with Oliver and he's that's really the focus of the book you see him kind of go back and forth between the two of like who do I want to be with who do I love more um and her presence in his life is just a bit more present (laughs) it's just like it's just a bit more there um and how their relationship affects him and affects the storyline 
is more present in the book than in the film. With that being said though, I like that they included her and their relationship, I guess to any extent, um, in the film because I think it, it does a good job of showing sexual fluidity within Elio's character. And I especially like that nothing regarding him and her's relationship, but also him and Oliver's relationship is explicitly um, stated. I think I think it's good that maybe at least in, in this in these kind of stories, maybe in like in Moonlight and in um, Call Me By Your Name, where they don't necessarily say like I'm gay. Um, I think it's good that they don't say it because. I think it works towards understanding sexuality and sexual fluidity better um, and understanding that it doesn't have to be black, white, and gray. You know, it doesn't have to be, oh, he's gay. Oh, he's straight. Oh, he's bisexual. It can literally kind of be whatever that person, that person wants it to be. Um, it can be defined by their own terms. I also like how nobody defines Elio or him and Oliver's relationship again explicitly um, I feel like it kind of gives them back that autonomy of just being who they are and kind of being more fleshed out human beings than being caricatures or being the person to represent one thing if that makes sense you know so like if Elio is bisexual I think it's better for them to not say it explicitly even though we kind of all know it to be true um, because it kind of puts him it kind of puts him in the larger group of bisexuality without making him the spokesperson or the or the poster boy of bisexuality if that makes sense you know um, so I really like how they, they talked about sexual fluidity in the film. Well, not necessarily talked about, but kind of showed it. Um, and I liked how they achieved it again, not by explicitly saying, oh, he's bisexual or he's gay or he's straight, you know. Um, I think, again, with just kind of understanding sexuality as something that is very vast very personal but very expansive I think that there needs to be stories that are not clearly defined and so in this aspect I like how his relationships are not clearly defined um even though it is more so a film about a gay relationship um I appreciate how girl's perspective and the girl's relationship with Elio is still put in there um as well and something else I wanted to talk about with Call Me By Your Name it will probably be a bit controversial and I don't want to say like I don't want to deem Call Me By Your Name um explicitly this like I don't want to say that this is exactly what the film did but I think in the grander scheme of things, um, it is probably like one of the only films that includes a relationship in which you can have this discussion, if that makes sense. Um, 
And I also want to talk about it because it's been something that I've kind of been seeing recently on social media. And that is kind of like, I don't even know how to really say it very well and articulately, but kind of like the push um, of pedophilia on gay men. And what I mean by this is I am definitely not saying that gay men or the gay community has a problem with pedophilia. I'm not saying that at all. Um, I'm more so saying that I've, I think there is definitely a problem with people, with straight people um, trying to place this idea of pedophilia on the gay community, if that makes sense. You know, I feel like I feel like they try to push, yeah, I feel like they try to push that um, as something that is a problem within the gay community that is very harmful and, again, kind of centers from, like, homophobia and stuff like that. So, as it relates to Call Me By Your Name, like I said, I'm not accusing the movie of having this, even though you could say it does, Um, but a major problem that a lot of people have with call me by your name is the fact that the gap between elio and oliver but more so the fact of how young elio is is kind of problematic a lot of people like technically in the film and i think in the book he is 17 um and oliver is 24 i think and so in the United States of America, that would be illegal because you have to be 18 years old to be at the age of consent. Um, and so he would, well, he's also considered a minor. So you're kind of like an adult at 18. And so at 17, he would still be considered a minor. So everything they do is kind of statutory rape. Um, a lot of people fight back that comment by saying this is in Italy. And I think the It's either like really late 80s to like 90s, I think. Um, And, you know, in Italy, their their age of consent or, you know, the age in which you are considered an adult is 17. And so technically they would be in a relationship. But then also a lot of people come back by saying, you know, it's the whole idea of like, I might be 18 and you might be 24 but we're kind of in separate, in different um, parts of our lives. We're kind of doing completely different things. Our mindsets are completely different. And I am so young. What is the saying? I'm not far removed from like my childhood um, as you are. And so that is a problem in the process. Like I'm, I'm more closer to being a minor than I am closer to still being an adult or that you are to being an adult um, and that is a problem in and of itself um, so in that regard a lot of people would consider their relationship to be pedophilic um, I think in the way that this relates to my point of um, straight people pushing pedophilia on the gay community it is more so the fact that that age gap 
it brings up the conversation of pedophilia. And I think that when you look at different, different, um, I don't know how you would say it, in different circumstances in which there is a gay relationship going on um, that includes pedophilia, I think a lot of people can easily or do easily conflate that with the gay community at large, if that makes sense. So I guess a big thing um, is we could talk about people like Kevin Spacey. So if you do not know, Kevin Spacey, he was recently, um, what is the word? Exposed for being a pedophile and for having molested a minor. Um, and it was a, a, um, a young man, a teen boy, I think, um, and his way of addressing the allegations, his way of addressing, um, yeah, his way of addressing the allegations is by, is, is by trying to use that as an opportunity to say, hey, I wasn't out at that time. You know, I like men. And at that period, I was struggling with my sexuality and, um, you know, I wasn't out to the world and people are like, don't use, don't use you being accused of pedophilia to try and now come out. That's not even what we're talking about. You know, we're not, we're not concerned with your sexuality. We're concerned with the fact that you are molesting children, you know? And I feel like, again, in the process, him using that as a, as a way of coming out, um, I feel like it, it pushes that stereotype that a lot of gay relationships are pedophilic, you know, because for homophobic people that are in tune in that story, him associating the two by using, um, that his, that allegation as a cover up for or him using his sexuality as a cover up for the allegation, you know, they're going to make that connection. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, so many people obviously have. And another way that this is really harmful or in another way that you see um, this come up is in like child sex trafficking, um, but also in like a lot of those, um, how do I describe it? Like a lot of the stories that come out about like pastors or just like church, um, officials, I guess, being involved in pedophilic behavior and being um, pedophiles and stuff like that. I feel like, again, that as well as like child trafficking, child sex trafficking, um, they go to push a harmful narrative as well. Because again, while 
the problem there is the fact that there are people, especially older men, um, taking advantage of children. I think a, a lot of people, uh, especially homophobic people, see that as like, as a byproduct of like their sexual desires and of their sexuality, you know, this idea of like this man, he's gay and he just like, he can't get anything but children or a part of being gay is being attracted to children. And, and you know, so it creates that, that mindset that, um, one queerness is some sort of perverse disease and that it is kind of like inherently pedophilic because you see so much of these horrific things happening um and a lot of times the focus is on men preying on you know young boys if that makes sense you know what i'm saying and so again like this doesn't really have anything to do with call me by your name um but I think that it is definitely something to talk about, but also to be aware, to be aware of in those moments of recognizing um, when somebody is trying to push this pedophilic viewpoint or storyline onto gay men or the gay community. Um, Cause a lot of times, Again, they they use that as or they use gayness as a cover up for being a predator, you know, and so a lot of people start to correlate those two as being intertwined or as being a byproduct of the other. And it's just simply not the case. Um, I'm not going to try and talk about, you know, the mindset behind people that are sexual predators or the mindset behind pedof pedophiles, um, because I'm just not going to. But also, it's like they're not mutually exclusive. They, those two do not go together at, at all. And I think whenever you're addressing such serious topics like that, and you are seeing images or you hear of people or events in which an older man was a sexual predator to a younger boy. I think you just have like the, what you should do is just understand that that is, um, a case of pedophilia. It is not, it has nothing to do with sexuality. It has nothing to do with gayness and, you know, it's homophobic to, try to um equate the two or to try to form a relationship because there just is not you know and I think that that definitely is a problem um that is extremely harmful and oppressive that a lot of straight people push onto gay people a lot of straight people push as a serious narrative and it's, it's just not um so I wanted to talk about that briefly because, again, I think that that is very important to talk about, um, especially as a m way of talking about oppression in the ways that straight people, heteronormative people, cis people um, oppress gay people and queer people in general. Um, but, you know, moving on, the last film that I wanted to talk about today 
is a film that I just kind of recently found out and watched, but I think also makes very interesting points. Um, and that is My Beautiful Laundrette. So when I was talking about our facts and tidbits, I made sure to tell you to remember the date 1985. 1985, especially in the US, was very important because it was kind of seen as the peak of the AIDS HIV epidemic. Um, My Beautiful Laundrette, it was set and centered and kind of came out of, I think, the UK. And so obviously it is a huge thing going on in the world, but there is definitely a difference in culture and in what's going on between those two countries. Um, but for the beautiful Laundrette, its timing is very important to its storyline and the message it portrays. Um, what is also interesting is that the movie came out three years after the UK decriminalized homosexuality in general. So you see this kind of being one of the first um, explicit openly gay films or portrayals of gayness at least in the UK and what I think is also interesting is how it talks about racism classism um, and kind of the inner workings of that while also focusing on a gay relationship so in the film if you are not familiar with the film um, it is about a Pakistani man who takes on the business of a laundromat from his uncle and he kind of joins forces with an, a childhood friend of his that kind of had recently or growing up has kind of fallen on the far right side. Um, so he is white he is um i guess you can say a skinhead and he kind of hangs around with other skinheads that um perpetuate racist violence against a lot of people of color but especially pakistani people um during this time because there was a, a big migration in the uk um and so it's kind of very important that he takes him in as a partner because it creates a clash between the two groups it creates a clash with um johnny is the white man also played by daniel day lewis uh, side note i would just like to say i miss daniel day lewis like i'm really sad that he has retired i hope he's doing well i really do Daniel Day-Lewis, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having a fun time doing whatever it is a retired actor does. Um, I just am really sad that he's not going to be in any movies in the time being. Um, but it, it was interesting seeing him in this. And especially because this was apparently his breakthrough role. Um, which is very, very ballsy, but also revolutionary. I mean, maybe it's not revolutionary, but like I'm saying revolutionary um that that is his first kind of role but also the same for the man that plays omar the pakistani man um it's his name is gordon something i forgot his last name i'm sorry but anyways so yes i think the film does a really interesting 
job at addressing um, racism and classism within their relationship, but also in general, because you see a lot how um, their communities kind of respond to this partnership because of what's going on. Like I said, Johnny's friends, his fellow skinhead friends, um, they obviously do not like it. They often stand around outside the laundromat, you know, trying to find, you know, when they can cause some trouble, um, breaking things. They break into the laundromat at some point um, and they're just constantly there showing a general disdain for this partnership but also the fact that you know Johnny is just helping this you know brown man out you know and then for Omar you see how the trauma and of um the trauma that they have faced as a community because of white people um you know how it affects the way that they do business how the way that they see other people um, in their relationship with other people of color. There's one part in the film where Omar's uncle kicks out a black man because he is short on rent or he is a bit late on rent. Um, and again, I think that even though it's a very short scene, it's a very short moment, you see again how how I guess the means to survive or the need, the necessity to survive and to do well um, in the UK kind of erases class, race, solidarity in a sense. Um, not necessarily because they're joined together by race, but you know what I'm saying? This kind of unity where it's like people of color together. Like you see how they are still you know, being racist and harmful towards other people of color um, that could very well be still within their own overarching community because of what they have faced from white people and their need to be successful in this white space, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, and so like you see them go at it and you also see how that affects Omar and Johnny's relationship. So with Omar being the sole person, the sole owner behind this laundromat as they're fixing it up, he uses the fact that he brought Johnny along or the fact that Johnny is working for him as leverage to kind of reassert his um, power. So he's like, you know, you were, he. there's a scene where he's like, you know, you bullied me, you tormented me, you traumatized my family growing up and look at you now, you're, you're mopping my floors. I have you mopping my floors, sweeping my floors. Um, and like you see how the strains of their relationship due to race and class and, you know, politics, socioeconomic standpoints um, affects their relationships now, even after dealing with all of that as as youth and how it kind of continues to put a strain on their relationship and their community's relationships um it's also an opposites attract story i think we all love an opposites attract story it's kind of interesting again because it i don't want to say it's the most harmful opposites attract but it's like one of the cases in which 
the opposites that are being attracted are like they they couldn't they what they are the ways in which they are opposite could actually be harmful for each other or at least for you know omar if that makes sense so like it's not just like oh he's a hard working man and he's lazy it's like no he's a racist skinhead and he is a brown man in a predominantly white country you know what i'm saying um and so again it, it's interesting how that plays out in their relationship but uh, in i guess this way the film also kind of flips it because omar is the one that has the economic leverage he's the one that is essentially well he's the one that is employing johnny and so you kind of see how you know that power dynamic shift um also plays into their relationship but still at the end of the day johnny's a racist skinhead you know so it's it's interesting and i think it also kind of makes you as the viewer um you're always kind of tiptoeing around their relationship, even if they're not, because I'm always like, you know, when will, when will this, this race class solidarity really kick in? When, when will this, when will them being opposite in those ways, um, really put a strain on their relationship more so of like, when will Johnny use his whiteness? as a way of trying you know as as a means to weaponize against omar um but i guess again you see how within a capitalist society um omar kind of comes on top for the most part as in i guess as a means of like social economic status if that makes sense you know so again like he kind of he kind of dominates their relationship because he is like the breadwinner, if that makes sense. Um, but it's still kind of interesting. I also thought that it was, it's very nice that the film um, gives the two men autonomy. Again, despite the time in which it came out, more so as it relates to American film history or more so as it relates to American history and what was going on in the U.S. at that time. Um, I think it is a very big step for them to give two gay characters autonomy over their relationship and to give them so much freedom. Um, in the film, they are, they never come out. They're kind of technically always in the closet. They never tell their their family that their family or friends that they're together but they they engage in a lot of behavior publicly that is teetering the lines of being um publicly out if that makes sense so like one of the biggest things especially just kind of in general but in the film is there's a moment where Johnny is like hanging up a sign outside of the laundromat while his, you know, skinhead friends or what used to be his friends are kind of just standing outside loitering. Um, 
he gets done hanging that thing Omar comes out and you see them hug and you see that his friends get angry because they're hugging because they're united and that they're friends but you see kind of behind their back I guess like not viewable to the friends but viewable to the audience you see Johnny lick Omar's neck and it's like yes his friends can't necessarily see it but that is such a public act in and of itself it is like that is it's just so risky you know and it's that kind of like risky behavior that they are constantly engaging in that really like it emphasizes their autonomy but it also like kind of it just makes it interesting because you see how much freedom they have over their their relationship and over their sexuality um even in public even if they're not out if that makes sense and i feel like that kind of freedom and autonomy is again something that a lot of queer people especially um gay men during that time did not have because of the societal oppression as a reaction to the aids epidemic if that makes sense you know so a lot of the ways that homophobia became a lot more rampant um during the epidemic in the ways that they kind of tried to push down, subvert, um, you know, gay people, gayness, and the public display of gayness, um, for them to kind of be as openly gay as they are, even without them having to come out and to be known to the world, um, it's still very, it's still kind of revolutionary because this is at a time where they were kind of this is at a time where it was really detrimental and where it was really kind of um unsafe for them to be out because of just kind of the terrors or fears of you know gay people at that time because of the AIDS epidemic um so it, it's really great that they have that and that they show it and that they give them that autonomy throughout the film like it's not just in that one scene where they are showing public displays of affection um again without kind of being caught you know and then i guess in the end what's really great is it's again a story that ends happily there is no doomed relationship there is no violence against the characters there is no violence against their sexuality um the film ends with them literally just being happy together enjoying a moment of happiness um that is kind of never interrupted by homophobia and like it, it might not have been with everything that had happened and all the progress that was made in the world but also in queer um cinema like you would think that by the 80s it wasn't that big of a deal for a happy ending but again given the resurgence of such rampant homophobia because of the AIDS crisis um it kind of is you know it kind of reasserts itself as being something that is very daring or kind of revolutionary um given given the times just again 
And so I think it's great that it, it sends that message because it again, it shows a happy couple that kind of begins, starts middle and end of just like being together and being able to express their sexuality in the way that they feel without it kind of being interrupted, tampered with, or ultimately brought down by homophobia. You know, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, that's all that I have for the films that I wanted to talk about for this episode. Um, when it comes to recommending some more um, gay films, I have a few. Um, the first one is called Portrait of Jason. It is kind of like a document. Well, I guess it is a documentary, um, but it is just an interview essentially um, about a gay man that was very prevalent in Hollywood around like I think the I mean I think the film takes place in the 60s but it's kind of like his his time in Hollywood as a gay man and as a gay performer um, before then it is on the Criterion channel so if you have the Criterion channel you can go watch it another one that I wanted to talk about is Happy Together um, that is also on the Criterion channel. I started it, but I haven't finished it. I also started, but I haven't finished um, Portrait of Jason. And that is by our good sis Wong Kar Wai. Um, and then... <laughs> I would like to recommend, even though I don't know how anybody would get a hold of it. I try to get a hold of it, but I couldn't. Um, but I do want to recommend... I guess just to kind of put it out there, um, the film Tongues Untied, that also came out, I think, around the AIDS crisis. It was it came out in the 80s. Um, I know it's on Canopy. I know that access to Canopy is very limited. I think you can be a student, maybe, if your institution um, supports Canopy. It also is free to people subscribe to certain libraries i don't think it is at the one the library that i'm subscribed to um, or that i have a membership to but if you're able to get your hands on that i would highly recommend it i've heard really good things about it and it is a documentary about black gay men relationships and i think that that is especially important to highlight um so yeah those are what I have for today's episode. Our next episode is going to be talking about bi films, bi characters, bi moments, everything like that. So I'm really excited for that. Um, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. And what else would I have to say? Oh, if you, as always, if you are watching this on YouTube um, and you would like to continue to watch you know episodes from this podcast or maybe um extra content from me possibly in the future i would highly suggest you subscribe but also like this video so that i just kind of know where people's heads at um if you are listening to it continue to listen i don't know subscribe to my podcast on podcast form i don't really know how that works um and if you want to stay in tune in the conversation i think that's the saying with yeah like getting extra content 
Um, but also knowing when episodes drop and stuff like that. I do have an Instagram for this podcast. It is at sigflick.pod. So if you feel inclined to follow that, I highly recommend it. Um, and I think that's all I have to say. I will see you in our next episode. So peace out, Girl Scout.